Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Four Word Radio, WFMP, Louisville, broadcasting to you live from the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM. And we also live stream wherever you are. Maybe you're on vacation right now. You can still tune us in at forwardradio.org or catch our podcasts, which are all archived there at forwardradio.org. That's also the place to go to become a participant in this community radio station, whether you want to be a weekly programmer like me or just do a one-time access hour we'd love to have your voice behind these microphones and we need your dollars in our coffers to stay on the air this is all listener sponsored radio so if you love what you're hearing today and you recognize that huh i don't hear stuff like this anywhere else on the radio dial chip in a few bucks at fordradio.org to help keep us on the air well i am really excited to have uh, two guests maybe a co-host and a guest how about that uh, in the virtual studio with me today uh, for a a conversation with Dr. Douglas Tallamy. Doug, welcome to the program. Well, it's a very pleasure to be here. Where are you joining us from today? I'm at home in Oxford, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Uh, wonderful. I work uh, at the University of Delaware, and that's very close. So. Yes, yes. Uh, and I also have a co-host with me. Kristen Forrest is here from Bernheim. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and, and it's a wonderful opportunity to get to have a conversation with Professor Tallamy. Yes. So we've invited uh, uh, Dr. Tallamy here on the air as a little preview to an event that is coming up at the University of Louisville this Friday in partnership with Kristen Forrest and Bernheim's Arboretum. Uh, we, we're doing this special talk with uh, Dr. Tallamy on Friday, July 22nd from 6 to 7.30 p.m in uh, the University of Louisville's Humanities Building, uh, Room 100. Uh, it is a ticketed event, although it, I should note that it is free for students with a valid ID, and there is a discount for university employees as well as Bernheim members, but it is open to the public, and everyone needs to get a ticket in advance, right, Kristen? Correct, and tickets are available at bernheim.org events. And you'll see all the prices displayed there. And I should also mention that even though the talk starts at 6, we're going to open the doors at 530 and we're going to have a really beautiful spread of uh, healthy, sustainably sourced appetizers from Amazing Grace, the local caterer. Oh, that sounds so good. That sounds so good. And as we get in our conversation with Doug today, it'll become obvious, uh, but I will want you at some point to talk why uh, Bernheim especially is interested in having uh, Dr. Tallamy speak. I'll just quickly introduce Doug. He is the uh, a professor of agriculture in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware. He has authored over 100 research publications and has taught insect-related courses for over 40 years now. Now, chief among his research goals is to better understand the many ways that insects interact with plants and how these interactions determine the diversity of animal communities as well. So his uh, book, Bringing Nature Home, was published by Timber Press in 2007. Uh, the Living Landscape, co-authored with Rick Darkey, was published in 2014. Nature's Best Hope, uh, a New York Times bestseller, was released right at the start of the pandemic in February of 2020. And he has a brand new book, The Nature of Oaks, released uh, in March. Well, 
March of 2021. Uh, so the the pandemic has been a productive time for Dr. Tallamy, I think. Uh, and he's also co-founded in 2021 Homegrown National Park. Do you want to tell us about that initiative just to sort of start off? And, and it, I think it's a way to, that our listeners might get engaged in this work, right, Doug? Oh, I hope they can get engaged. It's designed <laughs> to engage everybody in the world. Um, you know, we have we have two major crises on planet Earth, climate change, but we've got a biodiversity crisis, too. And if we had no climate change, we'd still have a biodiversity crisis. Right. Um, so it's a global problem, but it does have a grassroots solution. The problem comes from the fact that we humans think we can't coexist with nature. You know, nature's here and, 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 and we're someplace else. Um, well, that's that's not a sustainable future because humans are pretty much everywhere. So. Homegrown National Park is, number one, designed to convince people that uh, it is necessary that we start to let a little nature into our lives, Right. that it's fun, um, and that it works. Uh, so this is a, uh, it's an interactive website. You go and you, you uh, register your property on there and say, well, this is, I'm going to reduce my lawn, or I'm going to plant good native plants in a pollinator garden. I'm going to do something that makes my yard more ecologically friendly. And then you're registered and, and uh, as when I think we're up to 18,000 now people really? in National Park. The object is to start doing conservation outside of parks and preserves. Yeah, I mean, that has been a, a problem. You know, I studied environmental studies with, with Dr. Orr at Oberlin way back in the 90s. And even then we were talking about sort of the problem of uh, the, the legacy of the environmental movement being about sort of fencing off nature, right? <laughs> as, as if we could somehow protect it in a museum way. And certainly as population human population grows but and and our technology continues we burn more fossil fuels we see how that we just can't keep that mindset anymore right and you know justin it was exactly those ideas that excited us about bringing dr talamy to speak to our public because you know we try really hard at bernheim to model effective ecological practices that people can feel like they can try at home, you know, to make these things accessible. And it's also part of the message that connection with nature doesn't just happen at places like Bernheim or mm. big parks or national parks. It can happen right in front of us, right in our own homes, if, if we just make it possible. You know, we're, we're products of nature. We're totally dependent on it. We need, we need, we call them ecosystem services, but it's our life support. And we need those services everywhere, not just in those parks and preserves. We got what, 135 million acres of residential landscapes. Oh, wow. We can't, we can't just blink them out and say, well, you don't count. <laughs> our agriculture, you know, there's almost nothing left. So uh, this is important stuff. And it empowers you. Yeah. Because, you know, right now people are upset about what's happening on the planet. I think there's nothing one person can do. There's plenty of things one person can do. And you can watch it right, right where you live. Yeah, one one person who is in a relationship with a community, right, and a natural community, that's what one person in isolation, di divorced from those communities, is hopeless. But none of us are, right? Well, yeah, no, <laughs> that's right. We're talking about uh, that's the name of the book, Nature's Best Hope. You are nature's best hope. <laughs> you act. <laughs> I hope our listeners knew that, or they're they're knowing that now. Now they know. Well, and it, it brings up an interesting point too about connectivity, because you know we're starting to use the same words for social 
and ecological things like the importance of diversity, the importance right. of resilience. And connectivity is also a word that comes into play because you lose a lot of connectivity when you have all of these yards and properties that don't have productive landscapes on them, that have just simply monoculture lawn and, and aren't supporting the environment. And that, that really takes a, a critical piece out of the puzzle. Hmm. So aren't lawns nature? Isn't grass a, pl a natural plant? What's wrong with what's wrong with the average American lawn today? Oh boy, how long have you got? You know, there are four things that every landscape needs to do if it's going to ecologically contribute. They need to support pollinators. They need to support the food web. So they need to use plants that are going to pass on their energy, so that you have birds and other things. They need to sequester carbon, mm. and they need to manage the watershed. Lawn is the worst at doing all four of those. So, yes, it's a living thing from another continent, but um, any other plant choice, as long as it's from this continent, is going to do a much better job at those critical ecological roles. We've got 44 million acres of lawn in this country. That's that's a, an area bigger than New England. Yeah. So it's and cut your lawn in half. There you go. <laughs> and, it, you know, grass isn't actually the problem, right? It, the real problem is the mowing, right? Yes. Um, you know, cool season Eurasian grasses are not the most productive things in terms of supporting the other life that we're talking about here. But you're right. It's how we treat it. Uh, so I have to, be, have to be careful here. I am not suggesting we get rid of lawn. I'm suggesting we reduce the area that's in lawn and we continue to mow and manicure the area that we keep because that's mm. a key for care. That shows that we are we get what the cultural norm is. We're not rebelling against that. We're simply going to have less of our land dedicated to this ecologically dead landscape. Uh, but it's pretty. We, you know, we, we, it's a perfect plant to walk on without killing it. So it can be very functional, both aesthetically and, and in terms of walking around. So, yeah, we, we should keep part of our lawn. And, of course, the less lawn you have... The more easier it is to manage, the less mowing you have to do. And maybe you can then think about using just a human-powered mower instead of a gas-powered mower, right? Uh, and this is especially in my mind right now because here in Louisville, we've already had, what, six air quality alert days already this summer. And the gas-powered mowers are one of the most polluting engines we have in our city. And I think shifting the aesthetic is such an important thing because you used the word aesthetic earlier. And... It's not just the mowing, it's also the pesticides and uh, the irrigation, you know, using potable water to, to water a lawn is just a terrible thing. And getting people to realize that a, a natural lawn, even if it's not perfect, that, that is still a beautiful thing. And I think it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, using good tools of persuasion. And yeah. I noticed recently that the highway department has started establishing pollinator zones and mowing less and they're, and they're shouting out about it on social media quite a bit, which is great. That's progress. Wow. Good. That has been one of the major causes of monarch declines is, you know, along our, our, particularly our agriculture, we used to have what we called weeds, and most of them were good native plants like milkweed, and we just put a word weed on there, but we got rid of all those and planted grass. And so now and the monarch had no, no fuel to get to Mexico, n no plant to reproduce on, and that's true for our native bees as well. So um, replacing that lawn with the Good native plants that used to be there is a big step, particularly in the Midwest, towards sustainability.
So I, I think one of the things that people like about mowing is it gives them like a reason to get outside. We actually like to get outside, right? But modern culture gives us nothing to do outside, like all the entertainments on the inside. So, so I think there's a lot of people who like look forward to that time when they want to get out on their property, right? Um, but what could they be doing with their time out on their property instead of mowing? <laughs> They could be walking around observing what's happening on their property. Uh -huh. they, they could start uh, a bird list. What's using my property. They could actually, they could start counting butterflies. They could commune with nature. It will, you know, sitting on a mower with the engine running, I'm not sure that's going to drop your blood pressure. <laughs> time in nature does uh, it, you know, it helps you learn better. It lowers your divorce rate. I mean, there's all kinds of, of really fascinating research wow. that shows how powerful moments, and I'm not talking about long periods, but just moments in nature, you and nature, not the machine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it works. It works. And of course, gardening, whether you're growing flowers and beauty or food for yourself and your family as well, in both cases, as food for insects and the rest of the natural ecosystem, is a great way into that. And so there's a tie-in event that I think maybe now is the moment to mention, too, related to gardening that Bernheim is hosting the day after. We're going to hear from Doug on Friday, right? Coming up on Saturday, July 23rd, there'll be a climate resilient gardening takeaways event at Bernheim. You want to talk a little bit about that, Kristen? Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And it's really the perfect follow-up to Professor Talamy's event because, you know, I think he's going to be presenting us with all these great big ideas. And mm. we want to talk about how that looks on the ground where yeah. we live. So we're going to be doing some really specific thoughts about how you do this right here in Kentucky. And we're going to be using, um, so Renee is our Director of Horticulture and Sustainable Landscapes. And she's very passionate about showing people things that we do at Bernheim that can be done at home. Because so often people will look at that and say, well, yeah, you're a huge public garden. You've got all these machines. you got this big staff. So she makes a point of creating sort of example areas with the tools that people have at home. So she can say, look, this is what you can do with this. And this is how you plant a rain garden. And this is how you, you get water into your pollinator garden, you know, without irrigating. So she's she's got a lot of really great, exciting takeaways to give people. And we've, we've still got tickets for that. And that's also on uh, Bernheim.org slash events. And again, that's this coming Saturday, July 23rd at 10 a.m. Uh, there is a limit of 20 people for that walking tour. So go to Bernheim.org right now and get your tickets for that. And again, you can join us at Bernheim for that after joining us at the University of Louisville, where we're proud to co-host the talk with uh, Dr. Talamy coming up on Friday, the 22nd at 6 p.m. Also, you'll need to get tickets in advance at Bernheim.org. I'm so excited to have a couple friends in the virtual studio with me today here on Sustainability Now talking about reorienting our relationship with nature, realizing that humans are part of nature. And in fact, as Dr. Ptolemy's book title says, we are nature's best hope. Uh, if Could you dive into that idea, Doug, a little bit more? Um, as you know, sometimes people say we we're, we're I'm recycling to save the planet or, or, or I'm driving an electric vehicle to save the planet. I'm always kind of thinking to myself, you know, the planet, is ultimately going to be okay. <laughs> it's really about saving ourselves, right? Uh, but we can't do it without functioning natural ecosystems, right? Yeah. Nature is not optional. Mm. You know, as I said before, we are totally dependent on it. 
So if we wipe it off the face of the earth, we're, we're killing ourselves. Mm. You know, it's not an overstatement to say that. You can see ecosystem collapse all over the planet. In North America is very a rich place, and we've got a lot of resources. So it's harder to see ecosystem collapse. But I, you know, I'll go to any city. I bet I can go to downtown Louisville. I can go to New York City. I can go to Washington D.C. There's ecosystem collapse in the middle of those cities, and the only reason they can survive is because of inputs from ecosystems that haven't collapsed outside mm. of this. Uh, so we have to make sure they're intact as well. But we keep sprawling and taking more of that land and landscaping it in a way that excludes natural systems. That's the part we have to reverse. Hmm. And I, and I also want to really highlight a point we were already touching on before, which is that our landscapes need to be more productive, that the problem with a lawn is it really doesn't do anything for any species other than maybe the grasses that are there, right? But we need landscapes that serve a broad array of functions, and you kind of outlined some of those at the beginning, right? But uh, this this is kind of tied to a broader message that I think about, which is if we want to pursue sustainability we ourselves have to think of ourselves more as producers and not just consumers and that includes how we manage landscapes right yeah absolutely you know when you look at the various functions of plants and they have many um, certainly from the point of view of any terrestrial animal on the planet their most important role is to capture energy and turn it into food through photosynthesis so now you have all the food on the planet tied up in plants. Well, if you don't pass that food on, you still don't have any animals. And if you don't have any animals, you don't have a functioning ecosystem. You pass it on by the animals eating the plant. And mm. most vertebrates do not eat plants directly. Most vertebrates eat something else that ate plants. That's typically insects. And it turns out that caterpillars transfer more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant. Oh. So it's a very easy way to measure the productivity of your little system. How many species of caterpillars do you have? Why are they important? Well, let's let's take the chickadee. Let's take any of the birds, but we got data on chickadees. How many caterpillars does it take to make one nest of chickadees? Six thousand to nine thousand caterpillars. Wow. <laughs> How many caterpillars does your crepe myrtle make? Zero. How many caterpillars does your ginkgo make? Zero. How many caterpillars does your local oak tree make? Well, it supports five hundred and fifty-seven species locally and nine hundred and fifty nationwide. Wow. So a huge difference in their productivity. We call those keystone plants. So when I say think about the productivity of your property, you got to have some of those keystone plants that are producing most of the food hmm. so that you can you can have uh, other other life forms. And people say, oh, they're going to defoliate my oak. They're not going to defoliate your oak. Go drive down the street and look at any oak. It is not defoliated unless you bring in a non-native insect like the gypsy moth, which is now the spongy moth. Um, and they're here without any natural enemies. They're out of whack, and I'm not promoting that. Our native insects rarely defoliate anything, particularly when you have the chickadees eating hundreds of caterpillars every single day. And then you have that closed loop. You have, you have all the trophic levels, the plant, the herbivore, and the predators eating those, those herbivores. That's what oh. we're looking for. I, I, I wanted to hit on, touch on something interesting that you said just now when you mentioned the new name of the gypsy moth. If I recall correctly, this is the first time in entomological history that a species has been renamed because the name was deemed um, offensive. Yeah. Oh. And, if you look at the names of many of the moths that, that I study, 
it's the first of many because <laughs> uh -oh. it was very common in, in uh, particularly the early part of the, the 1900s hmm. to use uh, uh, what today would be culturally inappropriate names. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I don't think it's going to be the last one. To be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's an interesting shift. That's really interesting. And then, of course, another example like that here in Kentucky that has been so problematic is the Emerald Ash Borer. Uh, which is the one instance, I think, when it might be okay for us to use a little bit of chemical intervention. We're trying to protect our ash trees on the University of Louisville campus. We've got a little over 100 of them. Mm -hmm. And so we have to do these very targeted insecticide injections, which are not a threat to pollinators, unlike the way the typical insecticide applications go, Right. Yes and no. <laughs> when you inject your ash tree, you make it toxic. And then anything that eats that ash tree, including several species of sphinx moths, oh. are pollinators. Um, they're wiped out too. But in the current climate, if we don't do that, the ash is going get, to get killed. So we're working on uh, very active programs, biological control programs, bringing in natural enemies of the emerald ash borer with some success. There was a, uh, so there've been releases of two species of egg parasitoid and three species of larval parasitoids. Huh. And in a, uh, one of the counties in New Jersey last summer, there was 80% control. Really? Ash borer. So, so don't give up on your ashes. And that's a good reason to treat your ashes now because we're saying a decade down the road, we might have very good establishment of these natural enemies and, and we'll stop losing all of our ashes. Wow. That's, that's the goal. Wow. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is also really important to highlight, which is the the essential value of diversity. So it's it's not just about the keystone species you mentioned, not just about having that one oak tree, but a functioning, healthy, even urban ecosystem really relies on incredible diversity that we we tend to shy away from as humans. We like things to look you know, everything looks the same, tidy and neat, right? But that's not the way nature functions, right? Right. Way back in the 50s, uh, there's a theoretical ecologist named Robert MacArthur who said, you know, the more species you have in an ecosystem, stable it will be and the more productive it will be. And he called that the law of nature. Well, he never tested it. It's very hard to test, actually. But over the, the ensuing decades, a number of people have tested that. And he was absolutely right. As you add species to an ecosystem, it becomes more stable. It's harder to, to uh, knock it out of whack, and it becomes more productive. But the opposite is true. As you take species away, it becomes more, less stable and less productive. So when people say, you know, they'll pick up a, a, a moss. Well, what good is this moss? Or, you know, what good is the housefly? Yeah. What good is this? What good is that? It's very hard to take a single species and say, oh, you know, we totally depend on it. What we depend on are the ecosystems that all the aggregation of those species uh, stabilize. So it's part of the bigger picture. Mm. We want as many species as possible who are playing the game. Now, when we bring in species from other continents, they didn't co-evolve with, with our current ecosystems. And those species are not playing the game. All of our invasive species that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, upsetting the part rather than stabilizing mm. So it's got to be productive diversity to count. 
And that diversity needs to be seen at all kinds of scales, right? We, we need diversity in our gut flora, right? The bacteria inside humans, right? All the way up to diversity of those charismatic megafauna, right? That we see when we close our eyes and think about the victims of climate change. It's the polar bear, you know? But, but we need that diversity to exist at all kinds of scales in order to function, don't we? Yeah. And there's a tremendous amount of diversity out there. You know, we, we think of the things that control those caterpillars out there, and it's all those birds eating caterpillars. But the biggest control of caterpillars are other insects, particularly parasitic wasps. Right. And I just read an article shortly before I got on. They had one species of little parasitoid wasp, and then they, they did some DNA analyses, and they realized this one species is actually 16 different species. Oh. So, so what it means is we've got a lot more species out there than we ever thought we did. They just look alike, but they're actually different functioning species, all adding to that diversity. Hmm. And the value of that, of course, is if you lose one of those species, you've got 15 others to, to still help control that, that one, uh, one species of caterpillar. Could, could I ask a question related to your academic work? So you mentioned um, that you've been, or Justin mentioned that you've been teaching for 40 years. So two full generations. 41. 41. <laughs> two, two, two full generations and heading into a third. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder what kind of shift you're seeing in mm. attitudes with the younger generation towards these questions. Well, the younger generation today uh, is, you know, they're very interested. They're all for it. They want to, you know, youth, they want to solve the problem. They're proactive. That's good. I get a request uh, just about every week. Can I come be your student? And the answer is no, because I don't have the money for you. You know, and <laughs> people think the university pay for it, but they don't. Um, so the interest level is there. What's more interesting to me is the shift in, in our generation. And the people who had no training in it, who grew up in a, a segregated culture of, of, you know, nature and humans not intermingling, they're getting it too. Hmm. And they're, they're saying, I mean, this is why I'm coming to Kentucky hmm. because, because people are interested hmm. uh, and, and that's happening all over the country. So I think that's the real positive thing there. The young folks are busy getting educated, you know, getting married, having kids, going to soccer games, doing all those things. The real movers in conservation are, it's, it's the baby boomers who are retiring huh. because they've got the time and the money. Huh. <laughs> Does this desire to separate humans from nature, it, it's obviously deeply rooted. Uh, it's not just the boomer generation. It goes back further than that. Does it yes. come from a smart place in some sense, like historically, perhaps humans were under greater threat from nature and we kind of had to take some steps to separate ourselves and we just went too far. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well. You know, in the old <laughs> days, it was nature that killed us. It hunted us, it starved us, it froze us, it destroyed our crops. Mm. So we, had, we fought back and the people that fought back the best, that exerted the most control over the landscape, passed on the most genes. Uh, then the major threats came from not nature, but from other humans. <laughs> We're still doing that. Um, but yes, that's why, you know, the, that's, that's the sociobiology explanation for why we like these big open savanna landscapes. We can see the enemies, be it other humans or the lion, before they, they get to us. Yeah. 
Um, so, so, you know, the heavily planted, more closed in landscape deep down inside a little threatening out there. We don't, hmm. we don't know who's hiding out there. Hmm. I think but it's also mentioned that just briefly, the more you plant uh, urban landscapes, the more trees you get in there, the more crime drops. So th there is no correlation between the man hiding behind the tree. And, Interesting. And the and it's it's also built into our civilization a little bit if you read our our fairy tales which i guess kids don't read those so much anymore but it is so built into our consciousness that the woods are a place where you go and you get eaten or oh, people, right. you know or creatures do bad things to you or you disappear uh you are punished for your curiosity <laughs> and your disobedience and your daring so it's it's all the wrong messaging we have built into our storytelling you know? i'm glad kids don't read those fairy tales <laughs> anymore <laughs> <laughs> they were called Grimm's fairy tale for a reason. <laughs> oh, I'm so delighted to be having this conversation today with Dr. Douglas Ptolemy, author of Nature's Best Hope, and he's going to be speaking to us right here in Louisville via this magic of the internet. He'll be uh, we'll be gathering at the University of Louisville's uh, uh, Bingham uh, Humanities Building, Room 100, on Friday at 6 p.m. Tickets are available at Bernheim.org right now. Uh, it is free for students, uh, discounted for U of L employees as well as Bernheim members. But everyone is welcome to join us, and there will be a farm-to-table appetizer spread starting at 5:30 on Friday. And then Bernheim's also hosting a Climate Resilient Garden Takeaways event, a walking tour with Bernheim's Director of Horticulture and Sustainable Landscapes, Renee Frith, on Saturday the 23rd at 10 a.m. You can also get tickets at Bernheim.org. But joining me with Doug Tallamy right now is uh, Kristen Forrest, who is uh, Bernheim's Director of Education. Uh, Kristen, tell us a little bit more about what Bernheim tries to do and why you think this kind of perspective is is so important to share with our urban community here in Louisville. Yeah, thank you again for, for having me here today. It's really an honor to, to be in this conversation and to be representing Bernheim. So our mission is very simple. It's connecting people with nature. Mm. That's it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> and and that happens in many different ways. You know, it does. Everyone has to build their own personal relationship with nature. Right. And we also want people to feel a sense of agency with nature, you know, that they can change and improve what's around them. So it's not just about visiting a place like Bernheim, which of course we want everyone to do because there is truly something for everyone there, but we want them to take some of that sensibility home with them, you know, that caring for the land and that sense of being responsible as a steward. Hmm. And being a steward, you know, is just a very simple concept. It means being a, a part of something that's greater than you are, caring for it, nurturing it to its best self and knowing that it will be there after you're gone. And that's the relationship that we want people to have with nature. Hmm. Well, I'm going to emphasize that everybody on the planet depends entirely on the quality of their local ecosystems. Hmm. So why wouldn't everybody have the responsibility of taking care of those ecosystems? We've got the strangest situation now where we've got specialists, we've got ecologists and conservation biologists, and they're supposed to keep the world green. <laughs> everybody else has a green light to destroy it. <laughs> not working. <laughs> Definitely not. So we have to share that responsibility, everybody, because everybody's using it. But surely not all of us are going to get trained as ecologists. So what are some tools in the modern age that people can use, just average citizens who own a piece of property, don't know too much about how ecosystems work, to sort of build their skills and capacity and, and to start paying attention? Right. 
That's an excellent point. And, and it's one of the goals of, of our website, homegrownnationalpark.org. You can go there and you can you can read up on it. But the, the fact is, most people do not garden. Most people are, are busy and they simply hire somebody. Mm. All too often, it's the, it's the lawn care company who comes and sprays and mows and blows and goes away. <laughs> So I, I am promoting the development of, you know, an, it's an empty niche right now, but we'll just call it ecological landscapers so that mm. you can, again, just hire somebody. They can come, they will take care of your property in the way that, that it should be taken care of. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to become an ecologist or a gardener, or, or even if you love those things, you don't have to spend the time. You'll simply farm it out. And, you know, there's a lot of people looking for jobs where maybe they used to be looking for jobs, but <laughs> it's a good career that is going to explode in the near future, I think. So, Kristen, do you happen to know if there's any kind of ecological landscape services in, in our region that people could look into? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a number. Um, and actually, for uh, for Dr. Tellamy's talk, we're putting together a list of local resources. So everybody who attends the talk is going to get this. It's got some broader universal uh, things like climate toolkit and so on, but it's also going to have a list of Kentucky or Louisville area specific hmm. uh, organizations, resources, native plant nurseries, lists of plants, um, you know, seasonal information, that sort of thing. Hmm. But yeah, it's definitely out there. You know, it's not as big here as it is in, in some more progressive cities, but it's definitely growing here. You know, people here are very passionate about gardening and think that's starting to go in, in a, a positive direction. Excellent. That said, if I say, please shrink your lawn, people say, well, how do I do that? Mm. The easiest way to do that is plant a tree. Mm. If you're in the right place. Now, if you're in, in, in Denver or Arizona, that's probably not what you should be doing. But but here, that's exactly what you should do. And it's not hard. And the smaller the tree, the better. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Acorns are free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you do have to protect them from the deer. But uh, other than that, that's, that's a contribution that will eventually shrink your, your yard in the most productive way. I love that point. That's awesome. So your latest book, Doug, is all, you mentioned the acorn, is all about the nature of oaks. Why did you take the time to dive into oaks specifically? <laughs> um, well, the real answer to that is my wife said, you should write a book about oaks. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, okay. Do what so she says. The reason, the reason she said that is because I talked about Keystone species, the species making most of the food. Well, oaks are at the top of wow. that list. Wow, okay. They're at the top of that list in 84% of the counties in which they occur, which is over almost the entire North America. Um, wow. Not only do they support the most food, but they also sequester the most carbon. They also manage the watershed the best because of their huge root systems. They also, now they're wind pollinated, but they also contribute to pollination because uh, we're learning that a lot of bees in the spring go to those catkins when they're loaded with pollen and they take the pollen and use it. They just don't move it to an oak female flower. So they're not truly pollinators, but the oak is supporting pollinators. So it's doing, you know, the four things every landscape needs to do. Wow. But it was fun writing the book talking about the tremendous amount of diversity that, that depends on oaks that you can bring to your yard simply by planting that tree. Hmm. And is this generally true of all the types of oaks that we have, or are some even better than others? Well, that's a good question. There are 91 species of oaks, and wow. nobody has compared all of them <laughs> in this country. In this country. You know, in, in Mexico, there's something like 256 species of oaks. Wow. But yes, generally speaking, members of the genus Quercus 
are, are very productive. And, and if you were adapted, now oaks have different sections. They've got the white oak group and the red oak group and the live oak group. Within those sections, um, if you're adapted to one of the species, you often can eat a, a lot or, or maybe even all of them. Are they all equally productive? I had a student compare 16 oak species, all good. Some were a little bit better than others, like the white oak groups a little bit above the red oak group and, and the king of the white oaks, the white oak, Quercus alba, mm -hmm. was number one, but um, not, not huge differences. So I wouldn't worry about that. I'd worry more about picking the oak that is right for your piece of, of the world. There are oaks that like acidic soil, oaks that like basic soil, oaks that like rocky outcrops, oaks that like bottomland. Hmm. Pick the right one. Hmm. And they're fairly slow growing, right? Uh... <laughs> um, that is that is the myth, yes. And what it really means is that when they're young, so you plant that acorn, the first year of its life, it's going to put on 10 times more root biomass than Ooh. above that biomass. So it's, it looks like it's just sitting there doing nothing, but it's really building this root system uh -huh. that will then promote faster growth later on. Uh -huh. so we moved into our, our property in 2000, so it's been 22 years. I planted, so maybe the next year, I planted a bunch of acorns. You know, nice. Found, planted them, yeah. Those trees are, are over 60 feet tall now, and they're growing mm -hmm. as fast as any other tree on my property. So, um, Okay, yeah, so, so they're just a little slow to start. And no soil will grow slowly, but that's true of any tree. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Well, I've mentioned the pandemic a few times. Uh, I don't know if it had anything to do with you getting your book done, but uh, I, I feel like it's a good moment to think about our relationship with nature, right? What kind of lessons have come out of this experience of the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of improving our relationship with nature, better understanding our relationship with nature? And what has it done to the human psyche about nature? Mm -hmm. Yeah, people were stuck at home. What could they do but go outside? And they did uh, in many cases. A lot of people are, are looking at this, the, the reconnection just locally. By the way, it actually had nothing to do with writing the book because the book was already written. Okay. Two <laughs> years to get it out. Um, <laughs> but people, you know, people got tired of the apps and the videos mm -hmm. and they actually, they wanted to move around. The only place you could do it without a mask is outside. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it promoted it in many, many ways. Uh, what I hope is that that connection is sustained. Right. Because now we're back to the apps and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and Kristen Bernheim saw an increase in visitors, right? Yeah. Well, of course, we had to shut down for a little while, but then our visitorship has been huge and demands for our programs has been huge. Um, people had a lot of pent up demand. Yeah. So that's that that definitely impacted visitorship and, and people participating in programs because they were just so eager to get out. And our our homeschool hikes took on a whole new dimension because those had previously been for homeschooling families, which, of course, is fairly not a huge segment of the community. And we opened them up to all families because suddenly we all became homeschooling families. <laughs> and those were hugely popular. And we, um, we have a hiatus on those usually in the summer because we have so much else going on like summer camp. But, you know, those will pick back up in the fall. And I think a lot of people discovered them who might not have gone on them before, which was great. And, you know, some of these things change after after things go back to whatever we call normal. Mm. Uh, but I, I think there is a lasting impact on a lot of people. I have a lot of friends who discovered bicycling during mm -hmm. the pandemic and they haven't gone back on that. Or there are cities where they uh, 
put uh, traffic calming or you know created neighborhood greenways in order to give people linear parks that were safe for social distancing and they've kept those measures in place because they discovered people like them so yeah. i think it's always good to see what what are the good lessons that we learned out of something like this yeah we had 370 million people visit national parks last year mm -hmm. which is you know that's more than everybody in the in the entire country that's so. amazing wow wow um, well, we've got we've got about five minutes left, and I don't know if we've talked enough about bugs specifically because that's what you study, Doug. So, um, first of all, I want to ask, like, why bugs? If we're thinking about our relationship to nature, I, you know, I think most people are usually kind of like freaked out about bugs, uh, but why are they so important for us to study and understand better? I don't want to split hairs, but I study insects. <laughs> Bugs are diseases. <laughs> Very negative connotation. You know, E.O. Wilson said it best way back in 1987. He said, insects are the little things that run the world. Uh. They, you know, they pollinate 90% of our flowering plants. And if they were gone, we'd lose those plants. Food webs would collapse. We would lose all of the animals that depend on those plants. If we lost our decomposers, the, the earth would rot because we just have bacteria and fungi. And humans wouldn't survive any of those things. We depend totally on insects. So our war against them doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so for me, the way I mostly interact with insects and try to understand them is as a beekeeper. So I'm mm -hmm. going to raise the controversial conversation here with since we have an insect expert about is uh, is domesticating bees, keeping domesticated bees that are non-native, a problem? Is it crowding out the native bees that we should really be protecting? Or is it not that big a deal and it's worth it because of all the benefits of beekeeping? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on where you're talking about this. Honeybees are wonderful pollinators of a number of our non-native crops. And the way we farm those crops, where you have huge fields, um, even though native bees can pollinate many of those crops, their populations aren't big enough and they can't fly the distances to the center of the field mm. that honeybees can. They have a bigger foraging range. Hmm. So in that context, honeybees uh, really are, are essential. Um, the backyard beekeeper, who's not really raising bees for agriculture, just for fun, uh, probably is competing with those native bees mostly because we do not have enough forage in our landscapes. If we had the number of, of flowering species throughout the entire season that we used to have in the old days, there'd be enough nectar for everybody. Oh. But uh, you look around and um, particularly for our specialized bees that can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants. Uh, most of our flowering plants are non-native. That doesn't satisfy their needs. They'll go and they'll get nectar, but they can't use the pollen. Um, and many landscapes, particularly all those 44 million acres of lawn, have no, no you know, uh, flowering plants at all. So we need to get the forage back, and that issue of competition uh, will be less of an issue. And that forage is not just planting a flower garden, right? Trees, as you've mentioned before, are actually really vital, right? You know, many of our flowering trees, I would say most of our flowering trees, depend on pollinators. Things like, uh, like uh, Ilex opaca, American holly, the tiny little flowers, you don't even notice that it's in bloom. Really critical plant to a number of species of native bees. Uh, Virginia creeper, a woody vine, 
again, you don't think of it as a flowering plant, but it is. Huh. It's in bloom right now at my house. And there's this cloud of bees all around it. Huh. So uh, many of our black cherries, you know, our, our woody plants, tilia, the basswood, they're magnets, not just magnets, our bees depend on them. So yes, it's herbaceous plants, but the woody plants as well. And if people are worried about bees stinging them, a lot of the native ones don't, right? That's right. It's the honeybee that's going to sting them. <laughs> you know, most bee stings are not bee stings. They're wasp stings. Wasps, usually yeah. yellow jackets or bald-faced hornets. So bees get blamed for a whole lot of things they don't do. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we are nearing the end of our time together. This has been such a treat, and I hope it has whetted the appetite of our listeners to come on out this Friday for another hour and a half we're going to get with Dr. Talamy. Uh, you'll be presenting a, a talk on nature's uh, best hope, right? That's right. And then there'll be some Q&A? Yes, Excellent. And of course, there'll be uh, some farm to table appetizers starting out at 530. It's all taking place on University of Louisville's main campus in the Humanities Building, Room 100. And people can get their tickets now at Bernheim.org. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and for setting this all up. You've been amazing. <laughs> it's, it's been a huge pleasure and an honor. And we're so excited about this talk because I think it's, it's really the kind of messaging that people need and want to hear right now. And it's very positive and it's very empowering. So we're super excited about uh, hosting Professor Talamy. Yay. And Dr. Talamy, thank you for taking the time today as well. And we look forward to seeing you virtually, at least on the 22nd. I'll be here. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, friends. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, I've got your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned. back here on Sustainability Now on Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg. I hope you've got your pencils sharpened, my friends. Get your calendars out. Get ready to take action for sustainability. As we just heard, you are nature's best hope. Sustainability will not happen without us. Nature will not function without humans getting engaged in changing what we do, making sure that happens. And there's so many ways this week to make sustainability a reality and to get engaged in what's going on. 
The first couple things I want to let you know about relate to city planning and the reform of our land development code, which has been historically so, so problematic. I mean, going all the way back to redlining and the racial injustice that our city was founded upon, but continuing today with these ridiculous parking requirements and single family only, meaning, you know, really inefficient use of land, just encouraging suburban sprawl, all of these things that threaten our pollinators and ourselves and the functioning of our ecosystems. The Land Development Code is actually a huge part of that. Our zoning is so important. So coming up on Tuesday, July 19th, there's an event at the Middletown branch of the Louisville Free Public Library called Zoning Matters, Conversations with a City Planner. It's on the Tuesday from 3.30 to 8.30 p.m. These conversations are part of the ongoing land development code reform and equity-focused approach to revise the LDC and consistently with Plan 2040 to allow for increased housing choices and opportunities in new and existing neighborhoods to create procedures and regulations that are easier to use and to increase the quality of life by reducing the concentration of environmental hazards near housing, Joel Dock from Louisville Metro's Office of Planning and Design Services will be available at the Middletown branch of the Louisville Free Public Library to answer questions about zoning, what it is, why it matters, and discuss the ongoing land development code reform project. We want to hear about your neighborhood and discuss what the reform means for you. So he's rotating around at different libraries throughout the summer, and he'll be at Middletown this Tuesday the 19th from 3.30 to 8.30 p.m. Stop in. You can learn more at louisvilleky.gov. Just search for land development code reform. And the process continues. He'll be at Western Library on the 2nd, on Main Library here right next to us here at Forward Radio on August 8th, Southwest Regional on August 23rd, and Portland Library on September 6th. And also later this week and then next, the Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability and Planning and Design Services will be hosting two in-person visioning sessions for the new form districts that are part of the Land Development Code Reform. Please join us and share your vision for the future of Louisville's built environment. Uh, meeting information is as follows. So on Tuesday, July 26th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. This is coming up next week. There'll be a visioning session on the Urban Center neighborhood. Uh, and then and that'll be at the main library from 6 to 7.30 p.m. In community room 202 and then on wednesday july 27th from 6 to 7 30 p.m the focus will be on conservation districts and that's going to be way the hell out of the Gaines foundation lodge in the parklands 1421 beckley creek parkway you can learn more and watch a recording of the introductory meeting held on june 28th at louisvillekygov slash new forms and for more on the land development code reform, you can go to louisvilleky.gov slash LDC reform. Now, back to this week. Coming up on Wednesday, July 20th, uh, there is going to be a pop-up July Green Drinks event on solar power. It's taking place at Atrium Brewing in Shelby Park at 1154 Logan Street on Wednesday the 20th from 6 to 7 p.m. You can join the Louisville Sustainability Council, Louisville Metro Government, and Solar Energy Solutions at Atrium Brewing, hosting this pop-up Green Drinks event to spread the word 
word about the Solar Over Louisville deadline extension. There'll be a short presentation on solar, a rundown of the Solar Over Louisville program, on-the-spot pre-screening of your properties and enrollments, and a networking and mingling session afterwards. Residents, small businesses, nonprofits, places of worship, and other organizations from the 15 designated counties in our Greater Louisville District are encouraged to come on out and attend on Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. at Atrium Brewing. Uh, while you now have until August 14th to enroll in Solar Over Louisville, this event is your chance to learn about solar and sign up for the campaign all within the hour. Learn more at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. And then, coming up on Friday, as we've been talking about all day on the show today, there's going to be a special guest lecture with Dr. Douglas Tallamy, author of Nature's Best Hope, at 6 p.m. in the University of Louisville's Humanities Building, Room 100. Tickets are now available at bernheim.org. This event is being put on in collaboration with Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest. Uh, there is a discount for Bernheim members, a deeper discount for university faculty and staff, and it is free for students with a valid ID. But everybody needs to register in advance at Bernheim.org. This is presented in partnership with the University of Louisville's Sustainability Council. Of course, recent headlines about global insect declines and three billion fewer birds in North America are a bleak reality check about how ineffective our current landscape designs have been at sustaining the plants and animals that sustain us. Such losses are not an option if we wish to continue our current standard of living on planet Earth. The good news is that none of this is inevitable. Dr. Tallamy will discuss simple steps that each of us can take and must take to reverse declining biodiversity, why we must change our adversarial relationship with nature to a more collaborative one, and why we ourselves are nature's best hope. As you heard, Doug Tallamy is a professor of agriculture in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, and he has published over a hundred different research public publications and taught insect-related courses for 41 years. You won't want to miss this wonderful opportunity to be in conversation with Dr. Tallamy and uh, to meet some other fellow friends of nature. Come on out this Friday, the 22nd at 6 p.m. at the UofL's Humanities Building, Room 100. Uh, doors open at 5.30 with a spread of farm-to-table appetizers from Bernheim's Edible Garden and Isaac's Cafe. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, you won't want to miss it. And then, as we mentioned, following up on Saturday, July 23rd at 10 a.m. out at Bernheim. It is the next in the save, Savor the Season lineup for the summer at Bernheim. It's guaranteed to make your summer fun, positive, and fresh. This series is helping us see how our familiar yards can be seen in a different light and ask ourselves questions like, how can I help feed how can my yard help feed local wildlife and also reduce my grocery and water bills? And what are the climate-friendly choices I can make when I go to the nursery? That will be the focus on Saturday the 23rd at 10 a.m. with a walking tour with Director of Horticulture and Sustainable Landscapes, Renee Frith. The topic is Climate Resilient Gardening Takeaways. The on-site tour highlights how we move water in built environments at Bernheim and use it to sustain positive native 
pollinator habitats. All practices at Bernheim are meant to be replicable in your own backyard, and Renee will show you how you can make your yard more natural and a more healthy place. The series continues on August 12th uh, with From Root to Record, exploring Bernheim's collections through Plant Records, a walking tour by Plant Records coordinator Hannah Hunt. And it wraps up on Saturday, August 27th uh, with Drumming for Everybody at the Spirit Nest out at Bernheim. You can learn more about all this and get your tickets, which are required in advance, at bernheim.org. Now, also on Saturday the 23rd, it's the next in the Volunteer Opportunities with Trees Louisville. You can learn more at treeslouisville.org. They are seeking volunteers to help out at the grand opening of the Parkland Plaza in the lovely Parkland neighborhood on the west end of Louisville. They're going to be doing a tree giveaway as part of the grand opening at Parkland Plaza. You won't want to miss it, whether you're a volunteer or a tree recipient. It is Saturday, July 23rd from 2 to 6 p.m. Volunteers are needed to help them celebrate the opening of the Parkland Plaza by giving away free one-gallon trees to the community. Uh, future events uh, coming up with Trees Louisville include a July 27th pruning out at the Family Health Center in Portland. They also need volunteers on July 28th at Prune at Tully Elementary School. Again, you can learn more at treeslouisville.org. And I want to remind you about that August 1st deadline for MSD's Urban Reforestation Grant. They're now accepting applications through August 1st. So anyone looking to complete a tree planting project in their neighborhood or on a large piece of property or a business may want to consider applying. You can learn more at louisvillemsd.org slash trees. And lastly, also coming up Saturday, July 23rd, the Louisville Nature Center is celebrating National Moth Week. You won't want to miss this wonderful event uh, on Saturday, July 23rd from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. when the moths are out. And then again, they'll be repeating it on Saturday the 30th, 9 to 11. It is free for members. There is a fee for non-members of the Louisville Nature Center. But National Moth Week celebrates the beauty life cycles and habitats of moths moths are among the most diverse and successful organisms on earth luke will set up a light and tarp to attract these nocturnal critters you can be a part of the citizens science project to learn how to observe identify and document moths in the beargrass creek state nature preserve right there at the louisville nature center you can learn more and register at louisvillenaturecenter.org. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. It's been such a treat having you along as we discover how you are nature's best hope and how we are all parts of a functioning ecosystem. Let's do it. Let's reorient our relationship with nature to a more collaborative rather than an adversarial one. This is the week to get engaged in that. And I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.